Uh, if we have not met, my name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor at GFC, and so I'm excited to be with you today. Thank you for joining us, whether you are here for the first time, the second time, the one millionth time, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online or you're listening later. Uh, it is great to be with you today, and our, we're starting a brand new sermon series called Summer Love. Now, when I look at that graphic, as long as it's up on the screen, I think of Hoagie Fest from Wawa, okay? Anyone else get that vibe when you saw it? Okay. Hoagie Fest is the best. I need to bring that back. They have like Siptopia or whatever right now, but I want Hoagie Fest. So we're starting this conversation. We're doing something that we don't always do at GFC, but we're going to take a long time. We're actually going to take this whole summer and dig into one passage of scripture. Sometimes we go more topical. Sometimes we jump from scripture to scripture, but we're going to spend all summer on one passage of scripture. And we're going to really dig into that. So here's the thing with summer though. Sometimes, you know, schedules, we're away, we're doing different things and stuff. You miss something. If you miss a week, it's not going to necessarily mean that you can't move on to the next thought, but you're going to miss the progression as we go through and look at what the, the passage says. So I would encourage you over the summer, come back, watch online, whether it's on time or it's later in the Sunday or later that week, or listen as you drive, something like that. So you can catch up with each Week And we're calling this summer love because I think something that is actually inherently true about summer is there's a little bit of romanticism around summer, right? Maybe you've thought about that before, maybe not, but there are certain things you do and it just gives you the warm, fuzzy feeling. And especially if you get to sit and do that thing with a loved one, your family, your spouse, whatever, that makes it even more special. So whether it's just sitting on the beach somewhere, right? And just hanging out together and relaxing, like that's a fun time to have. There's things you can do during the summer that you can't normally do, like sit out and like gaze at the stars, right? Because you can do that during the winter, but it's a lot more cold and not as enjoyable. Or things like fireworks, like we talked about. You just go and you sit and you watch fireworks. The other night I was sitting on our back patio. Um, I, we have a TV on our back patio, so I was watching a hockey game. And I think it was it was on Monday night, I think, and uh, there were fireworks that went off behind me, which was about Morgantown direction. And I, I thought, I don't know if these are like, they were high enough that they looked legitimate. So I text Becca, I'm like, hey, there's fireworks outside. And so she came outside and she wanted to watch them with me, but of course that was it and I missed the fireworks. So um, then we just hung out and talked. But there's things about summer that get a little bit more romantic, right? There's a romanticism there. And so we're going to dig into 1 Corinthians 13 this summer and just go through, maybe you've heard these verses before. My guess is if you've been a part of a church or you've gone to more than like three weddings, at some point, this passage has been there. Uh, maybe you've been at someone's house and this passage has been on a poster or on a picture or a section of this has been on a wall somewhere. And so it's kind of a famous passage of scripture and we just want to dig in and go, what does this actually mean? Why does, why does Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 spend so much time thinking about what love is. And one of the things that's true in our culture is we'll slap the word love on anything. Okay? So, yes, I love my kids. Yes, I love my wife, but I also love Hoagie Fest. Okay? So, two very different things, very different drastic things in my life, right? Sandwiches and my family. But you could say that. And none of us would go, oh, yeah, you love that. Like, we wouldn't change it. But that word means something. It can mean a lot of different things in our culture. And Paul spends a lot of time saying this is exactly what this means, and let's talk about that. And so I want to give us a little bit of a background story today on, on what Paul is doing and why he's even having this conversation. And when he writes this letter, he's writing to the church in Corinth, which is, which is important for us to understand because sometimes when, I, or maybe it's just me, like when I think about this, this was not a letter that was like in the newspaper and it ended up on everybody's doorstep in Corinth. 
This was directly to the church and what they were processing, how they were understanding being the church in their context. And so that's important because that we have to think about the fact that Paul is, is really speaking to the issues that they're going through. And so one of the things or some of the things that we know about Corinth are this, that it was a prosperous place full of opportunity, accomplishment, and indulgence. Corinth was a big place. It was close to actually two different ports. And so they got a lot of people traveling through. There was a lot of commerce happening, all that kind of stuff. And so they would see a lot of different people at different times. This was like going to New York City or going to LA or going to the big city and town. Like you would, you would take time and you just go there to see and have opportunity. And people, maybe you've known, I've known people who have said, I want to go to New York. I want to live there because of the opportunities that are there, because of all the people, because of all the things and opportunities you have. Corinth was kind of that place. And so people had opportunity. If they didn't have work, they could go there. They could find work. They would have different chances to, to make a living. There were people there who had already accomplished things. They had built their, um, their business. They had built their lives. And so they had the ability to then give other people opportunity. And there was also a lot of indulgence. Things like prostitutes were easy to find in Corinth. And so not only did you have the opportunity to create your own life and to do what you wanted to do, you could indulge in everything that life had to offer and everything that could make you feel good. And so when people thought about Corinth, these are the kinds of things that they would expect. And so the church is in the midst of this, figuring out how do we show Jesus to people and help them understand what the difference is between him and some of the other gods they knew. Because one of the things that was true also of the ancient world was when you talked about God, many people would have been okay and on board with that. You start talking about God, most people worshiped some God. But here's what would happen sometimes is you'd bring up a new God and they'd be like, oh yeah, he's cool. And they'd like throw him on the other pile of all the other gods they already believed in. So the, the point of what some of the early church had to do was they had to help them understand, no, 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 this isn't just another God that we're talking about. This is a God that's above all of those gods. He is the God. Those other gods aren't actually real. There's one God to understand. This was something that set Israel apart in the Old Testament, many other cultures, one God that was odd to them. And then they had to live this out, convince people and live their lives in a way that said, this God is worth following, those gods are not, and that this is how we are to understand him. This is all a part of the context of what Paul is trying to do as we step into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But I want to start with this question, just to think about for you and for me, is what is something that defines your identity? What's something that defines your identity? Now, we could get really deep in that conversation, right? We could start talking about gender. We could start talking about uh, jobs. We could start talking about all that kind of stuff. And what, what's something that is something that's a part of your identity? But I want to take it maybe a little bit more to a surface level and just think about what is a group that you belong to that you identify with? Okay, so maybe you think about this as uh, the groups you're a part of on Facebook or the people you follow on Instagram. Um, I know that just from other people, I'm not in this group, but I know that there are certain people that drive certain vehicles that have certain attachment to that, that vehicle and the other people that drive those things. Okay, so I know that people with motorcycles do this and people with Jeeps do this. Okay, now I've not been in either one of those crews, but I think both of those groups have a different 
wave as they go by. Mark, is it, what do, they, what do motorcycle people do? Don't they wave down to the side or something? Yeah, it's like this sounds like, what, what's the Jeep one? Do you know? Is it the two fingers? Like, hey, like I'm not going to take my hand off my steering wheel, but I'm going to give you bunny ears. Like, is that the kind of thing? I don't know. There's a thing though. And if you're not in the group, you don't do it. So like if I was driving past Mark on a motorcycle and I like stick my hand out the window, I just look like a weirdo, right? Because I'm not driving the motorcycle. Or if I'm, I don't drive a Jeep. And so there's certain things that we connect with. Now for me and maybe for you or something that, like you guys know, if you've known me for more than five minutes, I have an attachment to Philadelphia sports teams. And so if I was ever here and I had something on that said Cowboys on it, you would immediately know that I am not in that group. I'm just trying to make an illustration, right? You would never assume that I had changed. Now, I would never actually do that. I would probably burst into flames if I did it. But I would, I, you know that. And so we just, we connect. We know other people that are in our groups. We know other people that we identify with. You've been in clubs. You've been on teams. You've been in communities where something that you have in common and somehow you identify is true of you in that group. And here's what I would say as we think about love and we think about 1 Corinthians 13 and we step into this passage is this, that love is the mark of a follower of Jesus. That the way that we love other people is the way that people will see us and identify us as a follower of him. And I want to dig into that idea today and we will consequently do that over the course of the summer. Today, though, I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, and we're going to start in verse, verses 4 through 6, okay? So again, you can follow along, you can flip in your own Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verses 4 through 6, this is what it says. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of grace, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. If we read this whole chapter and we kind of dug into what was going on in this chapter as Paul's having the conversation with the Corinthian church, what we would understand is there was actually a little bit of a competition going on within the Corinthian church. And some people would get, you know, they, they become followers of Jesus, they're a part of the church, and they would see the gifts that they had been given, their spiritual gifts or whatever abilities they had been given, the ways that they could minister. And there was almost this competition going on where like, oh, my, you know, my gift is so much better than yours, or I must have more of the Holy Spirit because I can minister better, or your gifting is not as cool as mine, or what I get to do at church is not as good as yours. And there was this competition going on and this issue. And Paul is starting to say, listen, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a competition. It's not supposed to be something where we're comparing and contrasting and seeing who has the spirit more and who doesn't based on the gifts we've been given. And he says, right, there's all kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit gives them. So it's not as though there's someone different giving them. It's just the fact that you get one and I get the other. There's different kinds of service, but we all serve the same God. So he says, when we do serve, we're serving the same person and God works in different ways, but it's the same God at work in all of us. He says there's this level playing field where if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever gift you've been given, whatever abilities you have, whatever way you can serve, that's a level playing field. And every person is needed in that. Everyone needs to do the different jobs that they have been given and have the opportunity to have. And he fleshes that out a little bit. And then he gets to the end of chapter 12. And in verse 31, he says this phrase, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. 
And in, ver- in chapter 12, he goes through all this stuff, like stop arguing with each other, stop competing with each other, stop trying to be better. He goes, but let me tell you a way of life that is better. Let me lay out for you the way that you're supposed to interact with one another. Let me lay out for you what it means to set aside what you want to be and what you want to accomplish and show other people how to show you how to love other people and connect with them in that way. So moving into uh, chapter 13, let's read the first three verses. He says this, If I could speak all the languages of earth and, and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessions, all knowledge, and if, it had, if, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. And in verse 3, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And so Paul starts to walk us through three ideas. Three areas that we can connect with and understand. And he says, but if love is not a part of them, then they aren't worth very much. The first thing he talks about is gifts. He goes back to this idea that what what we're talking about in chapter 12, right? He goes, let's talk about these gifts. Let's talk about the gifts you've been given. Let's talk about these things that you are competing over and, and showing who's got the better one or you're having these arguments about it. Let's just read verse one again. It says, if I could speak of all the languages of earth and angels... But didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think about what he's saying. He says, if I could speak in all the languages of earth. And, he, and he's calling us back to the, maybe the gift of, of tongues. And, and the way that we understand that is if I was you know, teaching or preaching and there was someone that didn't speak my language, I didn't speak their language, but there was something that happened there in between the two of us and the Spirit allowed them to understand what I was saying. That's a, that's a pretty cool thing to happen. I've preached or taught, uh, I think, once when I was in Chile in college. And I had to use an interpreter because there were people there that didn't speak English or didn't speak it well enough. And so when you're in that situation, you have to, like, preach for, like, a sentence, and then you wait for the person to translate. And you preach for a sentence, and you wait for the person to translate. And it, it takes a long time, right? There's a lot of steps there that have to happen. If I was aware at any point that I was teaching and someone who didn't speak my language was just hearing it in their language, that would be a pretty fantastic day. That would be really cool to me. And so he says, if you know all these languages or God uses you to speak all these languages, and he even says, and the the language of angels, like that's even beyond that. So he builds this up. He goes, this is a gift that you could be given that's beyond anything we could really even understand. He goes, if you received that gift, that would be incredible. But he says, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, I could have an incredible gift, but if I didn't love other people, I would just be annoying. I, I don't know what you like or what kind of music you like, but I kind of like music that has a lot of loud symbols. That's kind of cool. I like that we have them here. But if all of our, if, if we had a drummer today and all he did was just hit that symbol over and, and that's it. Didn't touch anything else in the drum set. Just hit that symbol over and over. And over. Eventually we would all kind of be like, okay, like pick something else, right? Like start hitting other stuff. Like that would be helpful, right? It would get too annoying. That's what he's saying. He's like, you can have this great gift, but if you don't know how to relate to other people, you don't know how to love others, this gift isn't going to get you very far because people are going to get frustrated. People are going to see it as annoying. People are, you're going to use it in a way that's not helpful and it's just not going to be useful. So he says, in connection with these gifts that we receive, that love of others has to be there. The second thing he goes to is understanding or knowledge. And just reading verse two again, 
says, if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge. Okay, let's stop there, right? If I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge. Again, he blows this out of the water. He's like, like, think about what this means. All those times where God does stuff and we're like, I don't understand what he's doing. You would just be able to be like, oh yeah, I get that. Like all the things about God that we just kind of go, I don't get that, right? The Trinity, the things like that. How did God create things? What did that mean? What did that look like? All that stuff. He's just like, you, if you had all of that information, all of it, ever. I had such faith. He goes on, if you had such faith that you could move mountains but didn't love others, he says, I would be nothing. Maybe you've been in a situation either uh, maybe in high school or maybe in college. Or if you went beyond college, maybe this happened. Uh, there were times where maybe I had a teacher or a professor that had a ton of knowledge, right? Had the PhDs, had maybe multiple, had like all the letters in front of your name you could ever have. And they were teaching that class. But maybe you've run into this, like I've run into this. And that person had a ton of knowledge and was a terrible teacher. Like they could, they could tell you all you need, but they had no connection with students. They didn't know how to help Students get excited about what they were teaching. They didn't know. And that disconnect can happen. And I think that's kind of what, what Paul is bringing up here. He says, we can have all the knowledge in the world, but if we don't know how to love people and connect with people, he says, it's not going to work out. It's, it's useless if we don't know how to convey it to other people. Listen, we can have all the knowledge in the world, and if we don't love other people, other people aren't going to care. They're not going to want to know what we know if they don't know that we care about them. And then Paul goes to this third place in, in verse 3. He talks about sacrifice. And this is interesting because this gets into like, yeah, you're actually offering yourself or you're, you're doing something that seems to be for other people. And in verse 3, he says, If I gave everything I had to the poor, sell it all, give it all to people in need. If I even sacrificed my body, I put my body on the line for somebody else so that they could be saved. I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. He says, I could sacrifice everything I have to give. And I could even boast about that. I could brag about that. There could be news articles written about me. I could be labeled a hero. But he says, if, if, if I don't love other people, I would have gained nothing. It would be meaningless. Here's what I think is true. And, and, and this might have been part of the conversation as he was thinking about going uh, from the Old Testament and Judaism and how they followed into this new way of, of living that Jesus was calling us to, and then Paul is talking about it. I think it is very possible to be very religious and also being very self-centered. It's possible to be very religious and very self-centered. It's possible for us or me to do a lot of the things that seem religious and to move in that direction and to be thinking about what I can do, what I can be, what I can accomplish that whole time. And that was some of what he was dealing with in chapter 12. It was a self-centered focus. And maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've gotten caught up in this before where religion takes over as a form of achievement or of hierarchy. And we can be self-centered in that. And he says that's not what we're called to be. Because you can do all these things, right? You can have all the knowledge, you can have incredible gifts, and you can even sacrifice for other people and still be centered on you and gain nothing because we love other people. We don't love other people. This is the tension we find ourselves in. And I want to go to uh, two other passages as we 
fill out our time. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4 says this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. He says, don't, don't just think about yourself. Again, Paul talking to the Philippians. This must have been something that was happening, right, in just the ancient world. Stop thinking about you. Stop thinking about what you can accomplish. Stop thinking about what God is going to do necessarily just through you and start thinking about what God is going to do through other people. Start taking yourself out of the center of everything and put somebody else there. Start to move in that direction because it's not just simply about you. And I think this becomes difficult for us because I think in church world and I think in the world in general, this is what we do sometimes. We elevate accomplishment over culture. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not talking about culture as in like broad brush culture we live in. I'm talking about culture within a church, within an organization, on a team. Let me, let me help us understand this. When we elevate accomplishment over culture, it means we look at what somebody can do rather than what somebody is to the organization. This happens at times uh, in sports or with celebrities or whatever. And what we see is they get themselves into trouble. They end up doing something like they get arrested for a DUI. They end up, uh, it comes out like they're abusive to their kids or to their spouse or girlfriend or something like that. And all of a sudden they, they maybe pay their debt to society and then they kind of come back, whether it's to a team or whether they're going to be in a movie again or whatever. And the question is always, do we want this person to come back because of what they can do, because they can shoot a ball or throw a ball or score a ball, whatever, or because of their abilities, or is the baggage that comes with them, is what's going to happen with them being a part of the organization or the team or something like that, is it worth it? And you have these conversations all the time where that you look at what somebody did. Is it worth bringing them back in? Is it worth them being a part of it? And the question is, does what they bring as an accomplishment, does what their ability make it worth bringing them back even though it might be detrimental to the team or to the group or to the organization. You might be thinking, what does this have to do with this? But here's what I think we're getting to. If the culture of followers of Jesus is love first, is to care for others instead of just ourselves, it creates a culture, it creates a place where we love one another self-sacrificially and when that happens in our context, and we're not worried about our own accomplishments or what we can do or how we move forward, that kind of, when we love people in that way, even when it's difficult, what happens is other people will see that and want to be a part of it as well. I, I was listening to one of the other pastors in our fellowship that uh, leads a much larger church than this, and, and as he was talking, he was talking about how they do their hiring process. And he said, he used this phrase, he said, when we hire we move at a glacial pace. That's the exact phrase he used. He said what they're realizing is it's not always simply about the skill set or the degree. He goes, what I need is I need someone on our team that is committed to being a committed part of the team and cares more about the mission of what we're doing rather than themselves. He said, because if I get it wrong, I'm three years down the road and maybe I have to do the process all over again. He says, we look for people that are committed to the mission and not just committed to themselves. And that's where we have to find our place. We have to be committed to the mission of Jesus and not just committed to us. And that means loving people 
that are inside our own body of believers, other people in the church, other people that we connect with on a spiritual level. It also means loving people we don't know on a spiritual level, we haven't connected with, that aren't part of our church family. In John 13, last passage we'll go to today, John 13, verses 34, 35 say this, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for, for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Two verses, not very long. There's a ton packed into this. Why does he say, I give you a new command? Why does he say, this is going to be news to you? This is different than what you've been taught. It's because in the Old Testament, as they processed what it meant to follow God, it looked a lot like creating your own little yard with your fence around it, and you just didn't leave that space. You said, this is where I know I need to be. These are the rules I know I need to follow. This is the life I know I need to lead. And if I need to step outside of that, then I'm not going to do it because it goes against the rules. It goes against what I understand to be true. And so he says, this is a new idea. Like you actually have to step out of the square. It's not necessarily just you and the rules you follow anymore. And he goes, you have to love each other. That's the new commandment. And you go, okay, well, well, the next logical question is, well, what does that mean? He goes, just as I have loved you, you should love one another. It's a pretty deep statement. Because what we know about Jesus is in order for him to love others and us to do likewise, everything is on the table. And he says this then, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Think about the reverse of that. If you don't do this, it will prove that you are not my disciples. The way that we love other people is either going to show them that we belong to Jesus and we're followers of him, or our lack of love will show them that we are not followers of Jesus. This means that followers of Jesus should be the most loving people on the planet. And I want to be careful because sometimes we, I say things like that, and what I worry people hear is we should just be completely accepting and not speak truth. That's not true. We're going to speak truth. We're going to speak truth in love. We're going to be loving to other people, even in the difficult ways. But this is a pretty deep calling that Jesus gives us, and this is what I think is true. Without love... God is misrepresented. If we interact with other people and we are not loving, we misrepresent the God that we say we identify with. Okay, so let's dig into that for just a second, right? That means if I deal with my children in an unloving way, I am misrepresenting God to them. If I deal with the employee that's frustrating to me at the other side of the counter, if I don't deal with them in a loving way, that means I'm misrepresenting God to them. Because in those moments, I am the representation of God to them because I'm a follower of Jesus, and I am called to love them. And so any person that we deal with in an unloving way, we misrepresent God to them. That's how deep this gets. And this is what I think is true. As Jesus goes, I give you a new commandment. Here's what I actually think is easier. Following 600 plus rules is actually easier than loving your neighbor. This is how many rules they had, right? Old Testament, over 600 rules. 
I think it's actually easier to follow all those rules. Let me give you an example. Let's just say that somebody called me and said, can you help me move on Saturday? Okay? Well, if I'm still going by Old Testament rules, guess what? Saturday's a Sabbath. Can't help you, buddy. Right? All of a sudden, there's a rule that creates a hedge around me that I don't have to follow. I can't do that much work, or I can't take that many steps, or I can't do this, or, hey, what are you going to have for lunch? Pulled pork. Sorry, can't be there either, right? Just like that kind of thing. All of a sudden, there's now these rules where I know, okay, like I can't leave my box. Different conversation when, when we hear that Jesus comes and he says, you're just supposed to love others to what degree? As much as I have loved you. That gets a lot more difficult because it's a lot more difficult to define. And it doesn't mean that every time somebody comes and asks us or every time somebody makes a request or every time that happens that we have to automatically give in and just do what they're saying. But it does mean that I actually have to process what that means. And it's not so easily defined as, well, there's a rule that I have to follow. And if I don't follow that, then I'm wrong. It means that I have to figure out what's most loving to that person. And so again, I come back to this statement that love is the mark of a true follower of Jesus. No matter who you're a fan of, no matter what group you find yourself a part of, as a follower of Jesus, as Christ followers, love has to be the thing that actually lands us in the camp and how people understand who we are. And here's what I think love does. Love will always move me from the center of attention in favor of someone else. Love will always move me from the center of attention in favor of someone else. If I'm going to love somebody else, I'm going to put, like, right, selflessness is loving. To say what's most important for me is not going to be the thing that is a hang-up for me. What's most important for you in some moments, that's what's going to be most important for me. That's what love is. And this is difficult because our natural thing, our natural urge is to say what I want or what I want to happen or what I want to force or what I want to coerce or what I want to make happen. That's the thing that's natural. But what's unnatural is to say, I'm going to move myself out of the way and I'm going to move you into that space. And again, difficult over and over and over again. There's one question that I think we can ask ourselves, and this is something that we're going to come back to over the course of the study and the conversations that I have with you, at least. And this question, I think, helps us define what does this mean in every moment. So you might get to a very difficult situation where you have to figure out how to love someone. And you might be going, I know I'm supposed to. I don't know what that means. Here's the question that I want us to ask. What does love require of me? In this moment, in this situation, if I'm going to love somebody, no matter who that other person is, what does love actually require of me in this moment? So you work that backwards to maybe that passage in John that we just talked about, right? And you go, okay, so if I have to love that person, how much do I actually have to love that person? Well, Jesus says, I have to love that person as much as Jesus loves them. And you just automatically, if you're like me, you just go, well, that's impossible. How can I ever do that? Right? Why, why is Jesus calling me to aim for something that is actually impossible? I can't. I literally cannot love someone as much as Jesus loves them. That's impossible. So why is he calling me to something that is not attainable? And here's what I think is true. 
I think what is true is the longer you understand what it means to be loved by someone, the more you love them back. The more that someone loves you and you have felt that love, the longer you live in that space, the more that you love them back. Let me give you a couple examples, right? I think I love my dad more today than I did when I was a kid. Because I have kids now and I get it, right? And I look back and I go, I get what he did there when I was angry or I was frustrated and I was like, this is so stupid, right? I was that that kid. In that moment, I look back now, I go, no, he was loving me. I get that. I think I love Becca now more 10 years later than I did when I married her. Because experience and time and all of those things go into that love. And the longer someone loves you and is there for you and connected, the more you love them back. How does this work out? Even though it is actually impossible for us to love someone as deeply as Jesus loves them, the more that we try to love other people in that depth, the more we recognize how much Jesus loves us. And when we understand that, then we live that out because it sinks in deep to us because we're trying to be the kind of person that Jesus was to us. Even though it's impossible, it will draw us closer to Jesus if we attempt and we live our lives in a way that says, I'm going to do my best to love them the way that Jesus loves them. What does love require of me? And this is much easier when it's people that we agree with. It's much easier when it's people that look like us. It's much easier when it's people that have the same ideas as us. But what's awesome is when we can do this with people, even in our own church, that we disagree with. When we can love each other and and even have a difference of opinion on big stuff, and we can say, you know what, even though we disagree, I love you. Even, even though we disagree on this topic, we're still going to do life together. Even though we disagree, I see the information you have and the information I have. We put that together. We wrestle with that. Like, that can be a good and positive thing. That's when that kind of love wins other people over. That's when people see people in the church doing that, and they say, I actually want to be a part of that. I don't just want to be a part of a place where just the same people get together all the time and have the same conversation. I want to be a part of a place where people that look different and think differently and do all this, like they love each other genuinely and they attempt to do it the way that Jesus loved them. That's going to change people. It's not hard to love people that are the same. It's hard to love people who are different. And when we can do that successfully, it can change things drastically. So what does love require of me come back to that question think about it process it when you don't know what to do here's our question for this week that i want you to ponder and maybe you can find a way to live it out how can i make god real through the way i love this week think about what we talked about right he says you what the way that you love is going to prove that you are my follower that means that for people to believe that God is real, they have to see the way that we love them. And if you think about this in your own faith journey, my guess is that someone that you perceived as someone who loves you told you about Jesus. And that means that you decided to follow him because you saw that they loved you as a person and cared enough to tell you. That's what we're called to do. To be the kind of people that will make this real, take this love that Jesus has given us and say, I'm going to hand it off to you. And in doing so, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And that means 
that God becomes real to them because they saw it make a difference in you. So maybe you know somebody, right? Maybe you know someone that you're not sure. I talked about last week, finding out someone's Jesus story. Say, what do you believe about Jesus? Maybe it's that person that you just, you try to love in a way that no one else has cared for them. And just say, I care about you. I want to step in. I want to be there for you. I want to be the person who makes God real to you. Because here's the problem, right? There's too many people who end up on the news or end up whatever that would rather hold up a sign that disagrees with somebody rather than just love them. And that's what people see. That's a wrong view of who Jesus was to us. It's a wrong view of who Jesus is supposed to be to even the people who don't know him. And it's our job to step in and say, I'm going to love you in a way that, that is going to make God seem different to you than maybe you've experienced before. And it's going to be the kind of love that Jesus offered to me. This isn't easy. And, and Paul spends a long time in this chapter, right? If you've ever read it, love is this, love is this, love is this, love is this, right? He just goes on and he extrapolates this whole thing out. And we're going to dig deep into that. And I hope that wherever this summer takes you, that you've processed this and we think about what does love require of me? With our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with the people we interact with that we've never even met before. And maybe the way that we interact with them will make God seem real for the first time. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we want to learn from 1 Corinthians 13 this summer and really dig into what it means to love someone. We know that when we look at the way that you loved us, it can be daunting because we can't actually love someone as deeply as you love them. But we ask that you would give us the opportunities. That at the right moments, we would ask the right questions. We would ask that question, what does love require of me in this moment? And maybe we would have the opportunity to care for someone to step into their lives in a way that says, God is real for the first time. And that people would recognize that in who we are. I pray that the more that we try to love you, even though and love others the way that you love them, even though it seems like an impossible task, that the love you have for us would just sink deeper into who we are. And we would recognize how deeply you care for us, even as we try to love others. We're thankful for a community that we get to do this with. We get to study and, and sharpen each other and challenge one another and do life together. We pray that this attribute of love, this mark that seems to be the thing that defines your followers would be true of us personally and would be true of GFC. In Jesus' name, amen.